Hi, I'm Alex Ryder. Welcome to At The Source, a podcast full of food stories. Today's guest is Eleanor Ford, a multi-award winning food and travel writer who is perhaps best known for her latest book, Fire Islands, which collates recipes from all over Indonesia, along with stunning photography and glimpses into what life is like there. I first came across Eleanor on Instagram and loved her vibrantly coloured posts of food and brightly lit places across the world. As is often the case, I did a bit of stalking before asking her to come onto the podcast, and thankfully she said yes. Before I hand over to my former self, let me just remind you that this is one of those episodes that was recorded before I took my four-month break. So, although I don't think there are many references, just bear in mind that we're in October now and this was recorded back in May. Enjoy! What is your first memory of food? Well, my first ever memory is a food memory, actually. Um, I was about two years old and we were having breakfast outside in Italy, uh, bread and honey, and a wasp fell into the honey and my father spooned it out and fed it to a lizard <laughs> that was near us. So you can imagine the delight for a young child and it's stuck in my mind forever. Do you think that when you were a child you appreciated that you were seeing all of these really amazing and unusual places that perhaps a lot of your friends at home weren't weren't experiencing it was just a way of life for my family i um was taken by my parents on all their travels all over the world i was sort of rather an accessory to their travel rather than them designing anything around children so it was very much in my my upbringing this exotic exciting adventures and with that i think i was perhaps a cautious and fussy eater early on, but the tastes that I w- was trying and learning about were e- exotic and exciting. And I think slowly they filtered in um, to become a really enjoyable part of the travel for me as well. I think young children are perhaps blasé about what they see. What, whatever their life is, is normal for them. So it never felt unusual to me. But um, And there are plenty of photos of me, you know, as a small child, grumpy face outside yet another temple I was being dragged around. (laughs) But I think it certainly kind of infiltrated uh, my way of being. And I learned to love it and appreciate it so much. And now I'm so thankful for the travels that I've had. Um, But but yes, it it was a normal for me rather than something that felt different or unusual. Given that it wasn't normal for you, was it a natural transition for you to turn travelling and food into your career? How did that come about? Yes, throughout university, I was at university in Edinburgh. We had four months summer holidays at the time. And so we, um, my boyfriend and I would save up every penny from the year to put towards long backpacking summers and we'd go away for the four months, um, always to different def- destinations, travelling overland. And combined with a love of food that I'd also built up, cooking my way um, through as many cookbooks as I could while I was studying, it felt like a natural fit as to where I wanted my career to be. So my first job, I I worked in food television. I was a food editor for the website. And what I would do was uh, watch the morning cooking programs and try and translate the recipes that I saw people cooking into something that could go on the website for people to cook at home. So it was a great first job. So you went from interpreting other people's recipes to eventually writing your own. Um, 
where, at what point did you think, right, I'm, I'm ready to write my own cookbook? Food writing was my first career, but um, as I got older, I moved into other fields of work and I left behind the recipe editing, the restaurant reviewing, the book reviewing that I'd been doing. And food became just a hobby for me alongside other work. So books felt like a natural fit for that, somewhere that I could still delve into the parts of food writing that I loved. And they're such a creative process, so a great joy. And I've really found something I love doing in writing books. That's actually the perfect segue into um, a question that I wanted to ask you about your book, Samarkand. Um, so it documents the food of the Caucasus and Central Asia, and you actually co-wrote that book with another amazing travel writer, Caroline Eden. Um, I wanted to get an understanding of the, A, how it worked to co-write a book, and B, what the process is. Uh, because these books are so much more than just uh, a list of recipes. They are... Um, travel logs essentially so that's two big questions rolled into one so let's start with the first one what is it like to co-write a book well caroline and i've been friends for a long time and it was a great joy working on a project together uh, we had quite different roles when we came to it she was writing the travel essays and stories that you find throughout our book and so she was coming at it from the research the travel the history uh, the voice in the recipes is mine. I was coming with the um, ways to cook, the interpretation of the food, and bringing a voice through that. And then we came together for the the creative process and vision. And how long does it take to to write a book like that? Because presumably there is a huge amount of research that needs to be done. Um, not only kind of reading and and trying recipes and and. Uh, testing things out, but also actually being there and experiencing these countries uh, firsthand. Yes, I think uh, with my books, they've both taken about a couple of years in the making. And then after that, there's a, a long time between submitting your words to a publisher and a book actually launching. It's amazing how many steps happen along the way um, and how long and how much thought and energy is put in by an amazing team of people to get a book to production. So the whole process does take a long run up before you get to hold your book in your hands. Must be quite an amazing feeling though when you get that that first copy and kind of, I'm, I have this image, this might be completely wrong, uh, you kind of get a box arrive and you open <laughs> open the, the lid and there's all these beautiful books because your books are beautiful, um, not only the photography inside but the patterns and the colours that kind of flow through them that I um, assume are very typical of the places that you're that you're covering. Um, but it must just be that amazing feeling when you first open them. Thank you, it is. Uh, well, I one of the great joys for me is collecting the props, the fabrics, the things that are used in the book. So you you know your book so well long before you ever see it. You've obviously gone through the words. You spent a lot of time doing photo shoots and putting things together, going through the proofs, looking at it from every different angle, the layouts. There's so much, but then there's nothing like holding it in your hands for the first time and actually feeling you know, the textures and and it's a nerve-wracking and exciting moment opening that box, just as you said. I can imagine, absolutely. I mean, well, I obviously I don't have a cookbook, but I can imagine that it must be a really amazing feeling, especially given that you're saying that these books take several years to, from the point of your first inkling of an idea to write about that right through to opening that box. Incredible. 
In the introduction to Fire Islands, which is your second and most recent book, which documents the um, the foods of Indonesia, you talk about your decision to leave London with your family and move there. How long were you there? Can you tell me about that experience? Yes. Well, Indonesia is somewhere that I'd spent so much of my childhood. Uh, my father was an architect and he was designing hotels across Java and Bali when I was a child. So we split our time between between London and Indonesia. And it was somewhere that was part of the fabric of my growing up. I knew these tastes and flavors and everything about Indonesia so well. It felt like part of me. And I, when I was thinking about an idea for a book and then thinking beyond just a book, thinking about my own family, I wanted my children to have those same experiences, to know these flavors and places that I knew. So we were lucky. My husband and I can both work remotely. And we packed up our lives one winter for four months to go on a research trip to Indonesia. We moved our family there. My children were one and four at the time, I think. And we spent that entire four months every day cooking, researching, learning, eating, wonderfully greedy time it was. <laughs> Oh, it sounds fantastic. So even though your children were relatively young when you went out there, I imagine that it must have had an influence on their their taste and the types of food that they mm -hmm. like to eat. Because at one, you're just starting to learn to eat different flavours and textures and solid food, aren't you? Absolutely. I think it's done both of those. It's a time we talk about all the time. Um, my children remember it quite vividly. And and yes, my daughter's sort of first solid foods, a lot of that was spent during our time there. She is absolutely addicted to Nazi goreng. <laughs> it's one of her favourite meals. Now. That's fantastic. It just made me think because my little niece is actually just turning one tomorrow um, and my sister's having a lot of fun feeding her all these different things, uh, certain things she loves. Very strangely, she really loves aubergine, which is, is quite odd, I think, for... Um, oh. Oh, fantastic! A, a foodie in your family. Yeah, hopefully. I think the, the great, the great thing about little ones, particularly sort of in that first year before they begin to get a bit more fussy, is they're so open to fly, trying flavors. And I think perhaps there's been a tradition in this country of keeping things as bland as possible and flavorless for little children. And if you look at what children's first foods around the world, they're often so much more exciting and, and interesting and diverse. Mm. And, and I like to think that an early exposure to different tastes sort of helps lay the pathway for a more adventurous palate as you grow up. My parents are both quite good cooks and we grew up eating all sorts of things that my mum would cook for us, including probably, you know, quite spicy food. And all three of us, my brother and sister and I all love cooking and love eating and love eating a lot of different things. And then you compare that to my cousins who um, hopefully aren't listening to this, <laughs> um, who, who really had the opposite. You know, they'd have a very separate meal to their parents and and both ended up being really fussy and are still quite nervy and fussy as adult eaters, which is just a, a real shame because there's so much amazing stuff out there to try. <laughs> I would try everything once. That's what I always say. Oh, well, I think that makes sense. And I am not immune to fuss, fussy eaters in my house. That certainly happens. But I sort of feel that if you put lots of interesting foods out there and you make food a pleasure and something you do together, that in time, that that idea must infiltrate mm -hmm. and, and yeah, 
people, children, even the younger children begin to try things and begin to experiment and enjoy the food. So I want to ask you uh, quite a difficult question now. Clearly, you absolutely love travel and it's in your blood. And I read that you've visited over 70 countries. Aside from Indonesia and Central Asia, um, which obviously you've written both of your books, do you have another favourite place in the world that you would like to share with us? Oh, that... um... It's it's a terrible question for me. It, it pulls on my heartstrings. One place is certainly Hong Kong. It's also a country I lived in for a few years, and I go back. My work takes me back there regularly, and I love Hong Kong. There's something so dynamic and exciting, and the food scene is just incredible. It's a kind of, as well as its own incredible regional food, it's a microcosm of Asian food. It's a really wonderful place to try regional dishes from across the entire of Asia. But then a little part of my heart is always in India, which I think is perhaps my favourite country on earth to visit. So it wasn't too difficult a question. (laughs) I like to throw in a couple, a couple of hard ones every time. Um, I've never been to Hong Kong, Mm -hmm. but I really, really, really would love to. And there's been a few times when I've been kind of nearby and we've ended up going to Singapore or or, um, not stopping in Hong Kong, either on the way or on the way home. And and so many people have told me that I absolutely have to go. So that could be the final final push that we need. When you get a chance, when you get a chance, it will be a real treat for you. Yes, hopefully not too much longer before we can all start traveling and and, uh, seeing the world again. Coming back to Samarkand and the recipes that you pulled together for that book around Central Asia, it's really clear that that area of the world has an incredibly varied cuisine. Um, It's such a huge area and there are lots of different influences and um, groups of people cooking very slightly different things. So I wondered if it's even possible to describe the cuisine of Central Asia to someone who has no understanding of of it, um, even maybe just in a couple of sentences? I think the influences is the key part there. This is a part of the world that sits sort of halfway between the, you know, the far east of Asia and Europe. And you can really taste that in the food. Bordered to the east is China, and you have the influence of the kind of noodles, the dumplings coming over. To the south, you have um, Afghanistan, Pakistan, India, and the spices you can see coming up because this was the heart of the old trading routes. Um, You've also got the food of Persia. There's a lot of crossover there with the um, plovs, as they're known in Central Asia, Asia, very related to the pilafs, the layered rice dishes with fruits and dried nuts. Uh, You've then got also the um, non-bread, so similar to the naan of India, and to the north Russia and um, Eastern Europe, where that flavor of dill that goes across the Soviet Union, that's very much used as well. So you get this exciting clash of cultures and flavors happening here. I think um, I was quite surprised to see something about Korean influences in, in the book as well. I think that there's a kimchi-esque recipe in there that is actually created by people who have Korean origin but may have never actually been back to that country themselves, which was really fascinating. It is interesting. It's a sort of Korean diaspora who have um, congregated uh, in Central Asia and they sell the exciting spicy food, the um, 
there's always a Korean section of the food market. And they make these wonderful carrot salads, which are rather like kimchi, but using carrots from the region. And um, they are spicy and exciting and something that is entirely of their new home, um, despite their Korean roots. Sounds fantastic. It's that that whole um, influences thing again that you're that we both referred to at the start of this rather lengthy question. Is um, I love the idea of of this area of the world just being a big melting pot, and I think that you capture that really well in the book because there really are just all these different types of things: <laughs> rice, noodles, kebabs, and yeah, the pickles and the the kind of fermented stuff as well. It, it's really interesting and. Um, I'm looking forward to cooking some of these things when I can get my hands on the ingredients once lockdown is is out of the way. I have a couple of questions that might spark some controversy with the listeners, and I was really interested to get your opinion on them. So the first one is, um, funnily enough, Korean, actually, which we just talked about. But I recently came across a recipe on Instagram for Korean panko chicken. And the ingredients listed included uh, kekap manis and sweet chili sauce. And I think kale or cavolo nero. Um, and I kind of looked at this and thought, there is nothing Korean about that dish. It struck me that the typical ingredients that you would see, like gochujang or sesame oil, were just missing. And I questioned them. I said, you know, why have you called this Korean panko chicken when it it doesn't it doesn't look or sound <laughs> like it's Korean at all? Um, and it kind of begs the question about authenticity and misrepresentation. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about your own feelings on that as someone who clearly does research and understand the cultures that you create recipes from. Well, I think um, there are two different things. I think one is that food has always been something that evolves. I think that to try and find an authentic version of a dish is, is one mission. But even that in itself can be so difficult because... What's authentic in one household, you move to the next, to the next different regions, but even different houses, and you'll find the same dish cooked very differently. Um, and I think that food has always evolved and changed. Uh, and on the other hand, if something's delicious and interesting and new and exciting, maybe that in its, its own is enough. Mm -hmm. So I don't think I'd ever criticize somebody for... Uh, or want to pick apart a recipe um, for being different or a fusion. Having said that, that's not really my style. What I like to do is find a recipe that does have roots somewhere that tells a story that you can see its heritage because I think that food that has a heritage is often the most delicious. Recipes that have survived the test of time have done so for a reason. So. Yeah, I don't want to pick apart something that's just delicious and exciting and inspired and a riff with flavors that work together in a new way. But for me, I like to, yes, champion a, a recipe with a story. That's just my personal take on things. Perhaps the, the key thing there then is the inspiration and it being a riff on something rather than naming it for a place that it isn't necessarily from or inspired by. Um, I think maybe in that particular example, it seemed to me that they were almost 
calling it something that it wasn't. And perhaps if they'd have just tweaked the wording slightly to say that it was inspired mm. by, um, then perhaps that may have come across a little better, I guess. I, I can see that. The internet in itself has created, there is, you know, you can Google a recipe and you'll come up with so many different variants, some of which you can recognize entirely of their place of origin, some which have gone off in mad, exciting directions. But but that in itself is is quite a fun exploration um, of seeing of seeing the way that different people have taken recipes. I suppose as well it's it's kind of difficult for us to to say what is or isn't authentic in the sense that um, as you said yourself, you know, um, recipes develop over time, different different cultures, different people move around and and settle in different places in the world and bring little bits of of different things around as well. So that idea of finding something that's truly authentic rather than something that has roots in a family history or a, has been cooked in a region for a long time, it's probably quite difficult to actually pin down. I think it is exactly. And I think one of the things I love doing is looking at the small changes that you can see within a food as you move around the world. And you can see things that tie them together. You can see the influence of the spice root so clearly on cuisines all along the countries that it touches. And um, for instance, in the island of Sumatra, in Western Indonesia, there's a very clear influence from the Indian and Arab traders who'd come. So the food there is much more intricately spiced. It's got that kind of mogul influence on the flavors than the rest of the Indonesian islands where things rely more on fresh spice pastes and those kind of lighter, brighter flavors of Southeast Asia. So I love I love looking at kind of food as history and what you can see um, has changed and evolved uh, over time. If you understand the history of a place, you probably can get quite a good idea of the of the food because I actually really love history and that's what I studied when I was at university. And there are so many ex examples around the world where war, the slave trade and uh, empire have totally influenced cuisines. And it is actually really fascinating to to follow that trail back. Oh, you're so right. Our lust for spices in ages past caused, you know, the age of discovery, terrible bloodshed, empires, fortunes were made. Um, it's it's incredibly powerful history was driven all by this this taste for spices. It's, it's shaped our world as we know it. Mm. I was just thinking then, not so much spices, but I was thinking about the potato and the humble chip. <laughs> I don't think we could survive in this in this country without potatoes in our diet. So, no, it's really interesting. Um, so as you write recipes from a different background and culture to the one you grew up in, has your knowledge or authority on those recipes ever been raised or challenged. For example, Fuchsia Dunlop is an incredible expert on Chinese cuisine. And I wonder if she's ever had people question her knowledge because she herself is not Chinese. I think that's a very interesting and valid question. And when I think of myself as a writer, I think about it being in the tradition of the, the long-standing tradition we have of English food and travel writers. I see myself writing as an outsider, um, looking in and paying homage to cuisines that I love. I definitely don't think that it's my place to be an authority 
um, or tell an encyclopedic background to a cuisine. I can only look and give my take as an outsider, as a travel writer on a country and its food. That's actually a really good way of putting it. And I probably hadn't thought about that. That's actually a compliment to the place that you, you're choosing to write about as well, because you're trying your best to project a, a delicious recipe or um, an interesting type of food that you've discovered as a travel writer back to the people here so that we can all try it ourselves. Um, that's actually swiveled the whole question on its head really and made it feel a lot more positive. So thank you. <laughs> Good. Um, I think there are certainly, there are amazing Indonesian food writers writing about their cuisine. And if people want to try and get you know, an authentic Indonesian approach. Of course, there are wonderful books. That's, I would never want to compete against that or think that I'm doing the same thing as that. I have a different story to tell. And that's all I'm doing is telling a story and, and writing my own love letter to somewhere that, oh, that I, I like really that appreciate. A lot. Writing my own love letter. That's really lovely. Um, as someone who also loves to travel, but hasn't traveled as much as you. I, I love that. Um, I really, really love Korean food and have been to career and traveled around a bit. And I think maybe that's where that question came from, because um, sometimes I put Korean food on my blog and I think, oh, you know, what will people think? Or do they think that I'm trying to say that I'm an authority on Korean food when I'm, I'm clearly not? But yeah, writing a love letter, that's absolutely what I'm trying to do as well. So I like that a lot. And I'm with you, Korean food, those flavours, they are so wonderful and distinctive and exciting. I think that's probably why I like the Fire Islands book, because I'm definitely someone with a, a very savoury palate and love spicy food. The big umami punches that you get from things like fish and chilli and garlic and all of those flavours are absolutely up my up my street. Talking of which, just before we run out of time, uh, I want to just go back to Fire Islands because we have kind of danced around a little bit. Imagine a reader has just purchased a copy of this book. What recipe do you think that they should start with? Well, I can tell you what recipe most people do start with. And I can tell you that because it was part of this wonderful um online cookery club recently with great um, British chefs and where people go through the book and they cook and they dissect the recipes together. And it was such a fun project to be part of. And the two dishes that almost everyone cooked uh, were one, the um, Sumatran lamb korma, uh, which is a very interesting, intense, um, spiced curry, which comes with these sort of lacy turmeric uh, stained pancakes. Oh, the lace pancakes. The lace pancakes, yes. They're so pretty. And I think perhaps that draws the eye, but it really is a very good dish. And um, and beef rendang, such an iconic dish of Indonesian cookery. And a really interesting dish to cook because it's um, the cooking method. It's rather like making a casserole in reverse. Uh, what you do is you will put beef and a spice paste and coconut milk in um, a pan together and start simmering very slowly uh, so that the meat gets slow cooked and pu pulled apart and only towards the end as it really reduces and the liquid has gone, you're left with the fat, the coconut oil. And at that point, the beef starts tempering in that oil and browning and caramelizing and becoming kind of dry and suffused with all the spices. And um, 
yeah, it, it just always interests me that very different way of cooking a braise. I'm actually looking at it now um, and it looks absolutely delicious. It's quite a dry, <laughs> a dry dish. Uh, it is dry. Traditionally, it's cooked quite dry so that all of that sort of tenderness and moisture is inside the meat and you're not left with a sauce. Um, to leave it with a sauce is called calio and that's a slightly earlier stage of cooking. But in Sumatra, people like to take it to that really deep, dark, kind of mahogany brown, um, intensely flavoured meat and it keeps really well it's even better the next day or the day after so it's a great dish to make in advance i've read somewhere that there's some controversy around the um the birthplace of the rendang because some people say it's malaysian and some people say it's indonesian what what do you reckon <laughs> oh gosh i'm not going to wade into territory wars but yes certainly both countries claim it and um Padang, uh, the Padang region in Indonesia, in Sumatra, is a home of rendang. And that has so much crossover with Malaysian food um, that certainly you, you will eat a lot of rendang across both countries. So again, it comes back to that, that um, influences and people moving and settling in different places and taking the, the flavours with them. Absolutely. And any Indonesian will certainly claim rendang, but I'm sure you ask a Malaysian and they will say the same. <laughs> and do you know if there's any difference in the way that they're cooked? So is Malaysian rendang the same kind of backwards casserole, quite dry sauce, or or are they pretty similar? Well, there are different. There are they are similar. There are different stages you can take the cooking to, and it moves through from being a gulai to being kalio to rendang. Rendang really is just a word. For, it's a cooking style. It's not a beef dish or a buffalo dish. You can have chicken rendang. It really is just a cooking method. Um, and you can even make a mushroom rendang. Uh, so it's all about different stages that you are taking through a coconut sauce being reduced. Ah, see, I did not know that. So what are the three key ingredients that people need to have in their stock cupboard in order to create tasty Indonesian food? Is there a kind of a a triumvirate of things that must go into every dish to make it very typically Indonesian? Well, I think what's nice about Indonesian food is you don't need a lot of unusual ingredients to get started because they rely so heavily on fresh spice pastes. And most dishes will start with a base that is something around shallots, garlic, chilies, ginger, and into that might go galangal, lemongrass, lime leaves... Um, you know, different variants will come in and alter the flavouring slightly. But it is these ingredients that are fresh uh, and, and store so well in the freezer. But there are some store cupboard things that I'd get. The first is ketchup manis, which you mentioned earlier in your maybe, maybe not Korean <laughs> recipe. Now, this is an Indonesian soy sauce. Um, it's a sweet soy sauce that is kind of reduced down with a few spices as well. So it's got this incredible intensity. It's got salty, it's got umami, it's got sweet. And it's a great finishing for dishes because it will kind of, if something's missing, it can bring everything together and give this glossy darkness. Um, you can drizzle it over at the table or use it as you cook. It's a great ingredient. Another thing that's very typically Indonesian is the dark palm sugar, gula jawa. And it's quite difficult to get in the UK. It is a kind of deep, 
brown, deep mahogany brown sugar. And it's got a lot more, again, than just sweetness going on. It's got a kind of savory depth, a little smokiness. And a little of that is used in a lot of dishes. And some dishes, it really dominates, particularly um, a sweet dish like there's some wonderful pandan coconut pancakes, which have got the sort of deep, dark, treacly coconut, um, the deep, dark, treacly sugar coating fresh coconut inside. And that's where you can really taste the flavor. So that is a wonderful ingredient. And if you can't get hold of it, I guess jaggery might be the next best substitute. One more, I might take you to, I might take you to Tarasi, uh, which is a shrimp paste. And this is used rather like fish sauce is used in Thailand, not to give a kind of fishy intensity, but to give just a tiny bit, giving a background savory note to dishes. And not every cook loves using it. In fact, a lot even in Indonesia I have found will leave it out. But um, it's quite pungent when you first toast it in the pan. But it does just melt away and gives a certain something to dishes. Almost like having uh, anchovies with um, lamb or something like that, is it? That it's used as um, at the start of the cooking process. Exactly. It's all the same. It's just giving that salty depth to flavour rather than a fishiness. And so where would people source these ingredients? Because you talked about some things that are very easy to get hold of. I mean, can people get them online? I think, uh, I mean, ketchup manis now you can get in the supermarkets. The joy was about 10 years ago, Nigella Lawson started cooking with it. And as soon as Nigella touches an ingredient, the supermarkets follow. <laughs> so large supermarkets, Asian shops, and then certainly online, you can source everything. And this really isn't cuisine with lots of well, the recipes I have chosen don't include the very um, hard to source, unusual ingredients. Perfect. I'm just wondering what I'm going to make first. <laughs> oh, it's too difficult. Um, I have to sit. I, I'm one of those people. I don't know if you're like this, where I, first of all, I have too many cookbooks, um, but I'm not ashamed to admit that. But secondly, I sometimes will sit on the sofa and just have a pile. That's definitely me. Yes. I take a pile of books, especially books like these that are so beautiful. You know, it's so much more than just a list of of stuff to make. It's a it's a story and there's and there's really beautiful photography. And I just sit and look at them all and then write my meal plan for the next week and decide what I'm going to cook. And yeah, certainly during lockdown, I think this is the same for a lot of people. I've been cooking a lot more. So I'm definitely hoping to make a couple of things in the next few weeks, which I'll have to post on the on the Instagram. Oh well, it's a wonderful way to to travel vicariously. I'd love to see what you cook. Absolutely. Armchair tra travelling, I think it's called. <laughs> Finally, what is, and again, I'm really sorry, this is another really hard question. What is your absolute favourite Indonesian dish to eat? Oh, it has to be chicken satay. Smoky chicken satay with a salty, sweet peanut sauce. You can't beat it. If you could eat that dish anywhere, where would you be? Oh, take me to a street food market. The sounds, the smells, and you can't get better chicken satay than cooked on a street stool where it's smoky and fresh and delicious. Oh, I love it. I'm going to be finishing this episode with a rumbly tummy. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. That sounds incredible. Eleanor, it's been absolutely fantastic speaking to you. I really appreciate you giving up uh, some of your Saturday afternoon. So I will save links to your books and your website so that the listeners can have a look at those. And yeah, thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight.